This morning we're continuing our series in the Gospel according to John. We're in chapter 3. We're in the most beloved verse in all of Scripture. John 3.16. He certainly wasn't the first, but Marcion, the second century heretic, became the most famous proponent that the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. He was excommunicated from the church in Rome in 144 AD for proposing a dualism between the Old Testament and the New, and for creating his own Bible, his own Bible that had only 10 books in it, uh, mainly from the Apostle Paul and a very shortened edition of the Gospel according to Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, which he so proudly named after himself, the Martian Gospel. His chief stumbling block was reconciling what he saw as a petty and vindictive and cruel creator God who was all law in the Old Testament and the God of love that he found in the New Testament. After his excommunication, he planted Marcionite churches throughout the Mediterranean, and they spread rapidly. Uh, He was ably refuted by the fathers Irenaeus and later Tertullian, but his teaching continued to plague the church even up through the 5th century. And he was condemned at many of the ecumenical councils. And part of the reason why his heresy uh, it was so popular lies at the root of the heresies of legalism and license. Now, these seem like two opposite extremes, but actually they are one and the same side of the coin. And they derive their faulty views from a faulty view of the law and grace. You see, when someone who is a legalist asserts that their work can actually commend them to God, they often overestimate their ability to do something good. On the other side of the same coin, those who deny the law has any place in the life of a New Testament believer also misinterpret the law as something only vindictive or overbearing or harsh, and an unloving God would never require us to keep such things. Both of these misunderstand the law and its ongoing place in the life of the believer, and both of these misunderstand the nature of grace. Both stem from a profound misunderstanding of who God is. Arguably, Nicodemus, who we've been looking at over the past four weeks, falls into the legalist camp, thinking he is keeping the traditions of the fathers and his membership in the family of Abraham is what commends him to God, makes him acceptable before God, makes him righteous. Marcion was someone who is who tended to cheapen the grace of God by not obeying God's commandments. He did this by outright rejecting the God of the Old Testament, but we can do the same thing when we also begin to view God the Father as harsh, judgmental, and vindictive. We do this subtly when we introduce a distinction between how God deals with his people Israel and how he relates to the church. We saw this in the last in the 20th century in the heresy of dispensationalism. 
but more subtly, it continues to creep into evangelicalism through popular pastors like Andy Stanley. He said in a 2018 sermon on Acts 15, quote, Peter, James, Paul, elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and my friends, we must as well. It's liberating for people who need and understand grace, who need and understand forgiveness, and it's liberating for people who find it virtually impossible to embrace the dynamic, the worldview, and the value system depicted in the story of ancient Israel. End quote. Stanley may have unhitched from the Old Testament, but in doing so, he has hitched himself to the ancient heretic Marcion, proving further that he has misunderstood the God who inspired both the New and the Old Testament, whose love and grace are seen on every page. And this morning, as we come to one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, of course, we are prone with something that's familiar to take it for granted. And sometimes our familiar Arity causes us to miss the deeper things that God is driving us towards. John uh, is an inspired commentator on the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. So from verses, from chapter 3, verses, uh, verse 1 to verse 14, John tells us the interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus. But then in verse 16 through 21, he comments on that interaction. It's no longer Jesus speaking. It's no longer Nicodemus, but it's John, the apostle, who is telling us about the encounter with Nicodemus and Jesus at night. He's reflecting on that event. And what rises amazingly to the surface, of course, is the love of God. Far from portraying a different God, John shows that the self-giving sacrifice of the Son to satisfy justice, to provide forgiveness of sin and reconciliation by removing the guilt of sin, that was the plan of the Father all along. Men like Stanley and Marcion have shown only that their vision of the love and mercy of God is, is so stilted as to make the sacrificial death of the Son meaningless. For there, the greatest act of judgment is for us the only source of mercy and grace. And only love could have led God to give so great a gift of salvation to his people. And only a fool would risk condemnation by refusing to believe in Jesus. So as we come this morning to look at this very familiar text, I want you to see beyond the simple statements to see the full impact of what they teach concerning the nature of God and his plan of salvation, uh, which is to save those who believe and to condemn those who do not believe. So as you are able, please stand with me as we read together from the gospel according to John, beginning in chapter 3, verse 16, which is also printed for you in your bulletin. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Almighty God, as we come this morning to see your love on full display and the giving of your Son, to see your grace and mercy poured out in the lavish sacrifice of our only Savior, your only Son. Father, may we see your nature and the beauty and wonder of the God of grace and mercy who has given us a gift that is incomparable. May we respond with gratitude and thankfulness as our hearts are turned to worship you through your Son, Jesus. For we pray this in his name, and amen. Amen. You may be seated. You can tell a lot about the love someone has for you by whether or not they will share their food with you. The only time I was knocked from the kitchen table was when I dared grab something off my father's plate. I think my trying shocked him as much as it shocked me as I lay blinking up from the ground, wondering exactly what just happened. But I learned. I learned not to touch my father's plate again. Uh, We sometimes confuse God with that kind of picture. We have messed with God's stuff, and he has knocked us off our chair, so he vindictively lashes out against us. But to come to this conclusion about God, we have to do two things. First, we have to downplay the seriousness of our offense. It goes something like this. Sheesh, God, what's the big deal? It was just an apple. Why are you so upset? Right? So we minimize the offense. It's not really that big of a deal. The second thing, and flowing from this, is that we have to turn and see his judgment for our offense as way out of proportion, making him vindictive and capricious. Like, wow, that's what you're going to do? We just took the fruit. It's not that big a deal. You could have given us a second chance. We are, of course, picking up this story in John chapter 3. In Medias Res, right in the middle, the climax that leads to the resolution. See, the problem was laid down in John chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. That was what lay at the hearts of men, sin. Jesus did not entrust himself to man because he knew what was in man. And what lay at the hearts of all men, of course, sin When Adam rebelled against God by breaking his commands, he he plunged all all of his posterity into sin and misery. Nothing in that required that God create a plan to overcome that problem. Nothing bound God to come and save us. He could have left us in our sin. And it would have been clear after two generations that 
it would have been impossible to, on the one hand, satisfy divine justice by, the, by paying for the penalty of our sin, uh, while also acquiring the characteristics of somebody who is righteous. Both of those things needed to happen. Paying the debt, if even possible, would have only reset us back to the same spot Adam was in in the garden. Not only did we need the debt wiped clean, but we needed a positive balance to our account so that we could inherit eternal life. And the whole story of Scripture from Adam to Jesus is a story of God coming to man, telling them that he had a plan, and man going outside of that plan to try to accomplish it by himself. Essentially, man says, hold my beer, God, I've got this. Over and over and over and over in story after story. Abraham and Sarah are a telling example of this. God tells Abraham, I've got a plan to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. 2.5 seconds later in the narrative time, Abraham is taking matters into his own hands. He takes Hagar to be his wife and he fathers Ishmael. And God said, no, that wasn't my plan. I'm going to accomplish my purposes And I don't need you to get in the way. And over and over again, that's the story. God is coming. God is going to save his people. And you see, the father planned to save the world by sending his son. God's act of salvation was a a giving up of that which was most precious to him. For God so loved the world. That's not the quantity, but that's the quality of his love. He loves the world so much that he sent what was most precious to him. And by the way, the world there is humanity that is set in opposition to him. Humanity that hates God. The world is all those who have rejected God as their creator, refusing to acknowledge, worship, and give him thanks as their God. That's the world that God loves and sends his only son to. It's not, the world is not those who are pretty good and God just helps them to cross the finish line. For many often think mistakenly that God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. That's from Ben Franklin, right? Don't, God does not help those who help themselves. God comes and helps the helpless who cannot help themselves. This means that the world is the absolute least deserving recipient of his loving gift. We don't deserve it, but that's not really the point. The point is God's love is on full display in the sending of his son. Now the thing that gets missed here, because we're, we're so familiar with verse 16, is that we sometimes, we've subtly supplanted a different narrative than this one, and it goes something like this. God so hated the world that he made a law that whoever does not do exactly according to that law shall perish for all of eternity. Thankfully, however, his son, Jesus, he knew that God was just having a bad day, and so he offered to give himself for the sins of the world. The father reluctantly accepted the sacrifice of the son because what he really wanted to do was see the world suffer. 
You see how great Jesus is? How great the gospel is? You see, we make it sort of orthodox sounding, and there are truths there. Jesus does offer himself for the sins of the world, but not because God is vindictive and petty and he wants to get even with humanity. Now, no one says it like this, right? We don't, we don't articulate it in this way, but we live like that is true. It manifests in the way that we think about God the Father, and it's a lot of hand-wringing and walking on eggshells around him, especially when you have sinned. And then it's like, Father, I know you hate me because of my sin, but remember Jesus. You promised you would accept his sacrifice on my behalf. Do you see how orthodox that sounds? There's a Catholic version that's even worse, which says, Mary, I know I have sinned. Can you go and remind Jesus that he died for me because I'm not sure if maybe somehow the Father has forgotten. And thinking this way is to tear the work of salvation, the work of redemption into three pieces. Not recognizing that every member of the Trinity was active in your salvation. It makes it seem like there is more than one will in God. That the Father acquiesces to the Son's offer would make it not come from Him. We are practically then tritheists, worshiping three different gods and being really careful to tiptoe around God the Father. This is nonsense. The Father's plan, God the Father's plan was to grounded in his nature as a God of love, was to send his well-beloved son so that the world might be saved through him. He did not send the son to condemn the world, but to save them. Notice what this does for your assurance. You think it's your sin that makes God angry with you. But in fact, it's your sin that provoked him to love you so much that he sent his son to die for you, to pay the penalty for your sin. The only thing that provokes God to anger, that causes him to condemn people, is their refusal to believe in his son. But even they only show that they were already condemned. He just leaves them to themselves. If you have adopted a view of God that makes him vindictive or petty and vengeful, John is writing to correct your view. I'm not saying that this is your view, but I am saying that if we're not careful, it is terribly easy to drift into that view of God. It was his love that gave the greatest gift of salvation, his son. And it was love that caused the only son of God willingly to give his life to pay for your sins. And it was love that sent the Holy Spirit to wash sinners clean and give them new hearts ready to receive the testimony of Jesus Christ. So what is it that really separates those who will not perish but have eternal life and those who are already condemned? Notice that it's it's faith. Faith is what divides the human race into two groups. But what does John mean by believe in him? There are 98 instances of this term in John's gospel compared to only 11 in Mark, 14 in Matthew, and 9 in Luke. However, the noun form of that word, which is faith, is not used at all. John does not use the word faith. 
He talks about believing. Believe in him. Believe is the verb of faith. And some scholars think that John is more interested in the act of believing. And the accounts we've already looked at from the prologue and Jesus' first signs that he had done in Cana, we know faith includes receiving Jesus or the testimony concerning him. It's also clear that this belief must be in his sacrificial offering as the Lamb of God when he's lifted on the cross. We saw that in verse 14 of chapter 3. So belief in Jesus is entrusting ourselves to him as a Savior. But you'll notice from verse 21 that it also includes repentance. What John calls coming to the light so that your works done in God may be seen by all. In other words, that all may see that your works, what you do in your life, is consistent with your profession, I believe in Jesus. They proceed, of course, we know, we learn later from the Holy Spirit at work in you. So as the Reformers taught, the alone faith that justifies is never alone, but is always accompanied by the works that proceed from it. For the faith that comes from above by the Spirit demonstrates its genuineness by working through love, to borrow a a Pauline phrase. The truth is that your salvation from start to finish has been carried out in God. But it remains perennially to remind yourself of the nature of God and His plan of salvation so that you keep the emphasis where it belongs, on Him. The Father plans salvation that the Son executes through His death on the cross. And the Spirit takes the things of Christ and applies them to you in the new birth, opening your eyes to receive Jesus and giving you a new heart to believe in Him. That message of John 3 is salvation belongs to the Lord from start to finish. It's all carried out in God. And if your salvation is carried out In God, what remains for you to do? And here we need to be careful, for as I've I've tried to show repeatedly, we're prone to turn what we do into something that will commend us to God. But just because we're prone to abuse good works doesn't mean there are not legitimate good works that must be carried out in God. There are. The giving of His Son and the receiving of that great gift both require and come with A reciprocal giving, not of something to try to match that gift, but a giving of the very self in love to God. Jesus later in John makes this clear in chapter 15, speaking about being the vine and abiding in him. And in verse 12, he says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. What Jesus says is, is now that you are my disciples, you must follow my pattern. Love leads one to lay down their life for a friend. I laid down my life for you because you are my friend. You must follow me by laying down your life as well. To be clear, loving one another as Christ has loved us calls for sacrifice. Some of you are very easy to love, and some of you, not so much. 
And it takes sacrifice. And the love that we offer to one another is costly because we are called to die to ourselves, to live to Christ. One of the things you will find that is laying down your life for others, it will require something of you. It will cost you something. The love of God on display In the giving of his son for your sins is met with the gratitude to give back to him all that you owe in love to God and love to neighbor. However imperfect that love is, it is necessary response to a salvation you don't deserve. Nor could you ever earn, but that God freely gave you. It's a gratitude that can lift your head when God calls you to walk through fire and pass through the flood. But these hardships only show how meager our faith is sometimes. But if you have eyes to see how enduring God's love is. I mean, God has not called you to walk through anything that he has not walked through himself. That he was not willing to suffer. How many of you would give your only son to be tortured and killed at the hands of lawless men? How many would let him take on himself the sins of all his people and then punish him for their sins, knowing that he's innocent? God has suffered. He has suffered in the giving of his son to be the lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. And God the son has suffered by entering into your fallen sinful condition and taking it upon himself and suffering for sins he never committed. And the Holy Spirit takes up his home in your presence, suffering daily, daily as you take him everywhere with you in the midst of your own besetting sins. God is suffered and he calls you to suffer because he has entered into your suffering. Unlike us, he's not passive in his suffering. These things are not done to him in a way that would catch him off guard. And I want you to go tell somebody that I'm teaching you God is impassable or passable. God is impassable. He has no parts or passions as our confession says. But God is not without affection. Scripture abundantly testifies to the fact that God pursues us in in our suffering. The cross, of course, being the fullest expression of the extent that God was willing to pursue us in our suffering. For there, in the greatest act of empathy, God the Son suffers the sinful penalty for you. While God the Father pours out his wrath and judgment for your sins. And if God can love you in that way and pursue someone who deserves suffering with his unrelenting grace... What is keeping you from that kind of love for others? The love of God is on full display in the sending of His Son. The condition for receiving that love is only believing in Him. It's only faith. What a damning display it is for all who refuse this love in unbelief. But they only prove the greater point. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. That was the Father's perfect plan. To save those who believed. But that's, that's not all that this text teaches. In many cultures, it's considered rude not to receive, not, 
not to receive a gift. If somebody gives it to you, you have to receive it. Receive it. Some cultures have very elaborate gift-giving procedures that include reciprocity. You returning something to them. The procedures are different based on the culture you're in. And it's only really in the secular West that we have this idea of a, a pure gift with, with no strings attached. But in the Greco-Roman world, any gift always came with a response that was required. Maybe sometimes it was only in the form of gratitude, but often it was much more. You were brought into the sphere of that benefactor who had given you a gift, and now you owed him. Well, a gift may be given that's unconditioned, that it's not based on who you are or what you have done. There is still an idea that the gift can be conditional based upon the response of the one who receives the gift. We've come across this already in John's gospel. Those who received Jesus, it says in chapter 1, verse 12, he gave the right, that is the privilege, to be called children of God. The conditional response that God gives the gift of his son in is believing in him. Those who do not believe in him, John says, are condemned already. How is that? How is it that they are condemned already? We have to think through this in terms of the storyline of Scripture. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. So goes the old New England primer, right? The grammar book teaching theology to students in school. What a novel idea. That is, in our federal representative, Adam, we have, because of his sin, all been plunged under the curse of sin and death. We are all condemned. Everyone born from Adam is under that condition, except for the Lord Jesus, right? He has a a different father than us. He has God as his father. And that is the state that you are all born into. Condemnation. All you need to do to remain in that condition is don't receive the gift of God. Do not believe in his son. And again, that word believe is much more pregnant than a bare assent to mere facts about an historical person who lived 2,000 years ago. It's a, a kind of belief that keeps you from continuing in the state of condemnation is a wholehearted trust and obedience as you follow him. But can it be said that part of the Father's perfect plan was to leave some in that condition of condemnation? The answer is sadly yes. Not because God is incapable of saving everyone. He certainly is. But as Jesus makes it clear later in this gospel, as he's talking about being the good shepherd, he says this to the Jews. they, They ask him this question, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. See, they don't believe that Jesus is the Christ despite compelling evidence otherwise. Because they are not his sheep. Only his sheep hear his voice and come to him and follow him. But notice that it is from our text 
Notice from what it is from our text in verse 19 that keeps them from coming to the light. They loved the darkness. It turns out the primary thing keeping them from believing in Jesus is moral. The hallmark of those who remain condemned in their sin is that they love their sin and they refuse to come to the light so that their evil deeds might be exposed. John frames this in a metaphorical terms of light and darkness. Two stark contrasts. For dark cannot be light and vice versa. When the light shines in the dark, the darkness flees before it. So too, when the light of the world shines amid the darkness of this present evil age, there are those who are drawn to the light and those who run. Maybe you've seen one of those zombie movies where a dark room and then all of a sudden a light comes on and there's shines on this half-dead person who, who's frantically trying to get out of the light. That's the picture of all humanity. We are trying to evade the light because we love the darkness and we don't want our sins to be exposed by the light. That's the picture John is trying to paint. There is no denying the sad reality that not all receive the gift of the Father and believe in His Son. There are two things I want to draw out from this. First, the desire to hide sin is a work of darkness. But Satan has left his stain on the church as of late for men and women who have colluded together to hide sexual sins and sins of abuse and greed and manipulation. And maybe it began with a good idea. I want to preserve and protect the purity of Christ's church. I don't want Christ to be blasphemed. And so they hide their pastor's sin. But that tactic is diabolical it's motivated by evil and it belongs to those who remain condemned as we read from ephesians in our confession of sin what are christians to do we are to expose the unfruitful works of darkness by bringing them into the light let us not think that adopting the enemy's tactics will work in the kingdom of god it will not work we need to ask why it is that this became, becomes such an appealing tactic to use. Not just in leadership of churches, but in families and in our interpersonal relationships as well. Partly we can say it's because there's still something of the old Adam in us. And so despite knowing better, we often do the things that we don't want to do. And the things that we want to do, those are the things we don't do. That's Romans 7. But it's also because we've created environments all around us that is in our relationships with others, within our families, within our churches, within our society that are not suffused with the gospel. The gospel is not the central thing. Legalism causes us to try to pretend we are something that we are not. Sometimes only so that we can remain part of the group. We, we don't want to be ostracized. We don't want to tell people who we really are for fear that they will reject us. Paul condemned the church in Galatia. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Instead of creating gospel-centered cultures around us where open confession of sin is commended, we have fostered the very characteristic that mark places of darkness. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of my favorite, one of my favorite books of his entitled Life Together. And he said this, quote, In confession, there takes place a breakthrough to community. Sin wants to be alone with people. It takes them away from community. The more lonely people become, the more destructive the power of sin over them. The more deeply they become entangled in it, the more unholy is their loneliness. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light and the darkness of a person. This can happen in the midst of a pious community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and closed isolation of the heart. Sin must be brought into the light. Sin that has been spoken and confessed has lost all of its power. It has been revealed and judged as sin. It can no longer tear apart the community. Now the community bears the sin of the individual believer who is no longer alone with this evil, but has cast off this sin by confessing it and handing it over to God. The sinner has been relieved of sin's burden, and now the sinner stands in the community of sinners who live by the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. Now one is allowed to be a sinner and still enjoy the grace of God. We can admit our sins and in this very act find community for the very first time. End quote. Amen. We need a place where we can be sinners and be accepted because we are forgiven. And if that place is not the church, if that place is not our homes, where can we find it? We are all adept at putting people in their categories of sin. We have these hierarchies that we make. But if we, and there's a risk for any community when they begin to eschew the darkness and walk in the light that sins once known will be the basis for forming our prejudices and suspicion of one another. Oh, he's, he admitted to stealing. I'm never going to trust him. Oh, he said he was a liar. Oh, I'm not going to trust him. Oh, that guy's a pervert. Stay away from him. Right? And we begin to color each other by the confessed sins instead of by the forgiveness that we all receive in Christ. There are, it is cliched, I know, but there are no perfect people. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And with Paul, if everything you have been given is a gift, then why are you boasting like you didn't receive it? Meaning if you are maybe a foot more down the path of sanctification than your brother or sister, can you really boast that you've accomplished that on your own? In order for us to create communities centered on the gospel, we must be people who confess sin. And we must be people who share the forgiveness of Christ with one another. We must be able to come to each other and say, I have sinned. And that person must Take that confession and express the forgiveness of Christ. Because if you can't express that, then what right do you have to claim it for yourself? We have to create these kind of communities. Otherwise, we will go like every other church that is faltering right now. Every institution that is failing because we try to hide our sin. But we are sinners and we are saved by grace. And we need 
the forgiveness that comes from our brother and sister in Christ. We need them to speak those words to us. And that means we have to be willing to open ourselves up. And secondly, the fact that the Father's perfect plan includes leaving people in their sin and allowing their condemnation to remain does not restrict the free offer of the gospel to all. Jesus still came to his people who, by the way, largely rejected him. He still preached the good news to all, even those who he, as God, knowing the hearts of all men, knew would reject him. I mean, if I knew someone I invested three years of ministry with would go and betray me for 30 pieces of silver, I don't know if I could invest in him for that long. And Jesus knew the whole time. And he still took time to love Judas. And that's an illustration for us. Yes, it is true that the Father's perfect plan includes leaving some in their sin, leaving them to that just condemnation, but we don't know who those people are. So to whom does the message of the gospel go? To The message that God sent His only Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life? To everyone. We publish the good news far and wide because it is through the message of the gospel that His sheep hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and come to Him. It is a sad and sobering thought that some people will not receive that message who will instead scoff at it, rejecting Jesus, the greatest gift from the Father. But to those He has planned to save, remember, in the joy of receiving the gift of Jesus, that that you never forget, you never forget that it was the loving plan of the Father all along to send His Son to save you. God is so good And his heart is so bursting with love that he didn't leave you in condemnation, but gave his son to save you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we're so deeply convicted. We're so humbled and in awe and are filled with gratitude at the love poured in our hearts by the Spirit, the love that You gave to us in the giving of Your Son. No greater gift. And You planned it from the beginning. From the moment when Adam fell, You had already planned, You had already determined to send Your Son to save us from sin. Father, help us to frame our thinking about You rightly so that we see your goodness and your love displayed on every page of Scripture and seen clearly in the sending of your Son who gave his life for us. Father, as we come this morning to your table, may we be reminded of the union that we have with him. For we pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.